You're listening to Manx Radio, and this is Judith Lay welcoming you to the podcast edition of The Archive Room. Judith Lay here, once again opening the door to the Archive Room, Manx Radio's treasure chest of stories of island life from years gone by, told by the people who were there. So come on in, and let me take you for another gentle stroll down Manx memory lane. If you were with me in the Archive Room last week, you'll remember that we were at the cinema, listening to some great stories from the years when the island boasted 11 cinemas that were, in the words of one manager, packed to suffocation. Such was their popularity with both locals and visitors. Well, in the Archive Room tonight, I've got the projector switched on again, but the focus is fixed on just one particular film. One thing that I like is riding around on a motorbike. I'm a speed king when I once begin. I once won first prize two and six. I know all the dirt track, dirty tricks. I'm a marvel when I'm out to win. In a 50-mile race, I am the best. I ride five miles and skip the rest. We're going to hear from people involved in making No Limit, a musical comedy filmed here on the island that put George Formby firmly on the road to international film fame. By the 1930s, George Formby was already established as a popular singer-songwriter and comedian, accompanying himself on the ukulele. But he knew that he could do more. Well, have you ever felt that if you got the chance you could do a thing really well? Well, that's the way I felt about pictures. And many years ago, I came down to London and I even wrote my own script along with Beryl and a man called Arthur Mertz. And we went all round the studios. They'd never heard of George Formby. They didn't even want to hear about him. I went everywhere, but nobody wanted to know at all. So back up to the provinces I went and we worked around for a long time and I was playing in a place called Warrington. And a man called Johnny Blakely came round and he said, I'd like to make pictures with you. And he grabbed his hand off. Anyway, he said, come up on Sunday, we'll talk it over. So we went up on the Sunday and we talked it over. And he said, yes, I'd like to make pictures, but I haven't got a story. I said, I have. And we brought out this little story that we'd written. It was called Luke's Boots. So the whole thing was settled. We came to London and we went to the film studios. Two studios, <laughs> one room over a garage in Albany Street. And when we wanted to start making the picture, we had to press a button so that they stopped the engines down below. 
Well, at the end of 14 days, we'd finished the picture, and it cost a large sum of £3,000. Well, then came the time to sell it. Nobody wanted to buy it. Well, it was a lousy picture. <laughs> oh, it was so dark in places, you had to strike matches to see it. <laughs> the coating couples liked it, though. But uh, at that time, Basil Dean, who was making a lot of very big pictures, he was going around the country trying to find out what the different salesmen wanted. And they said, we want George Formby pictures. He said, who's George Formby? They said, look through that window, and he saw a queue up right around the theatre looking at this Boots Boots. So he got them to bring me down to Ealing Studios. I found a seven-year contract, and that was the start of me making 22 films. And there again, strange as it may seem, everyone was a success. The making of Boots Boots that George mentioned a moment ago was followed by Off the Dole, and they were moderately successful. But No Limit, the first of 11 films that George Formby made for ATP, Associated Talking Pictures, was a massive success. Made in 1935 and starring George Formby and Florence Desmond, it was directed by Monty Banks and centres around the adventures of a chimney sweep from Wigan as he attempts to win the TT on his homemade motorcycle, the Shuttleworth Snap. Everybody's caring, I am such a daring rider. My inside rattles when I go the pace. My ribs begin to shake about, there's all my spare parts sticking out. So come along and see me riding in the DT Ray. Of course, the Isle of Man is the only place you could possibly make a film about the TT races. But director Monty Banks was always going to need quite a bit of local help, as Jack Cannell, father of the legendary TT commentator the late Jeff Cannell, explains to David Collister. Well, actually, at the time, I was uh, taxi driving and I was approached by one of the persons from ATP to see would I be interested in uh, giving them a little bit of directional help because they were making a film of racing and I had already done one Manx Grand Prix and they had uh, the two brothers, Raoul, who had also raced the Manx Grand Prix and we were originally supposed to be just... Uh, directing them as to where people would be allowed to be and where they would not be allowed to be. And I just packed up, well, I put a fellow on the taxi, actually, and uh, earned myself quite a bit of money for a change. What, what sort of money did they pay you, then? Well, the offer originally was three guineas a day plus a packed lunch from Fort Anne daily. Now, how would that compare with your, your, your normal pay? Then? Well, you were very lucky if you were earning two pounds, two pounds... Five a week, uh, that's what I was getting, I think, on the taxi, uh, £2.5 for a seven-day week, but uh, it was three guineas a day whether there was any shooting done or not. So you, you found yourself not as an advisor in the end, but, but actually in the film then? I did, actually. They brought one of their uh, supposed-to-be daredevil men over here, I think his name was Bert Gerrish, if I remember correctly, and uh, the first day of shooting he was... Uh, incapacitated, I think it was either a broken arm or a broken leg, he uh, shot off a couple of planks at the back of Blake Bridge and dropped into the river. So that was uh, him and his bike out of the way then, was it? That was him and my bike out of the way, yes. But Your bike? My bike, yes, because they didn't fetch a bicycle for Bert to ride at all. They just spotted my old BSA and uh, you never saw racing bikes like it in your life. 
So then from then on, you and, and the Rowell boys and one or two others were, were riding for the uh, the stunt scenes, really, were you? Well, we got a mix-up. We did uh, part and parcel of it each, yes, all the way along the line, whichever one they seemed to pick on to do the job, and uh, the rest of us were just filling up uh, riders on the road for all sorts of fancy work. Now, the the crew that would be there, was there a lot of people doing these shots or just a handful of people there? Were the stars there as well? Uh, well, the only two stars that were there were uh, uh, Florence Desmond and George Formby himself, who seemed to be... Uh, Poles apart, as far as I was concerned, but uh, the crew wasn't very big, if my memory serves me right. There were about a dozen of them all together. Mm. Did people come out from around the island when they knew they were shooting, come out and uh, spectate at all this? In certain places there were. There's one I remember in particular down on Solby Strait, down uh, by the Glen Keller Whiskey Place now, where a child was supposed to have crawled across the course and they... Uh, the rider went into a dirty old greasy pond there. Uh, all, I think, the whole of Solby Village turned out for that, but uh, there were a few at Ramsey. And, of course, for the grandstand scene, they they brought every camper that would come up from Cunningham's camp, and I think they gave them five bob each and a free trip to the pictures. <laughs> did uh, did you have any hairy moments then in, in the shooting at all? Uh, not really hairy. I think the most hairy moment I had, I was supposed to come out from the back of a little island there in front of the Glen Helen Hotel and hit a fella coming up the road. And in those days when clutch levers and brake levers came out of the handlebars, I, uh, I got my handlebar lever stuck up the back of uh, one of the other riders' belts and that was uh, <laughs> very hairy indeed. Yes. What did you make of George Formby himself then? Well, to be quite candid, as a, a rather youngish, as 19 at the time, I, I thought... Well, I wouldn't say he was a bit of a nutter, but uh, he was very hilarious. He was exactly the same. He never stopped. He was either singing, banging the old ukulele. Or... What, even off stage, on, on set, off set, just the oh, same? Anywhere at all. Anywhere he stopped, he'd give you a song and he'd ever chatter. But uh, for some reason, they didn't seem to want to be together, the two so-called stars. Because in those days, the changing room for Floody Desmond was the back seat of an Austin taxi. Mm. What happened to your bike then? Was it uh, uh, virtually a write-off after you threw it over the top? Uh, well, the bicycle was a write-off, actually. I mean, it was a colossal loss to me. I think I'd paid Teddy Christian about 15 quid for it, and its back was broken. So uh, I just asked the, uh, the accountant there, I said, what about the bicycle? And he said, well, how much? Is well, I said, 40 quid will cover it, you know, and sold it to them. And so the film company was, wasn't actually short of money for uh, anything then? Well, it seemed not. I mean, you seemed to be able to say, well, uh, I want or this is going to cost, and uh, out of what was supposed to be a £35,000 budget, it seemed to be you could have anything you asked for. Jack Cannell reflecting on the part that he played in the making of the film No Limit. Jack Ward was a schoolboy in 1935, but well remembers how some of the special effects were done. So there was a chap called Bert Kerish on a BSA. He rode up, up the steps at the side door, but the steps were actually painted on a ramp. The door was made of balsa wood and was 30 inches across. Now the handlebars of the Beezer were only 29 inches, so this was quite a good stunt as he, as he rode through the door at a fair lick, you know. They had this sort of dust all over the place, didn't they, as he hit the door? Yeah, that's correct. Um, those bags of fuller's earth were put over the door, 
you see the fuller's earth came down as soon as you went through the balsa wood, you see, and dust everywhere. You would be schoolboys at the time. Uh, how many, half a dozen of you or something? Like? There was actually ten of us there. Now, some of the chappies' parents took part. Uh, Bert Killier's grandfather, he was roped in to the bar to drink and slosh ale everywhere. <laughs> He'd enjoy that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, his name was Joe Tasker, actually. So there was actually ten of us, and um, Monty asked us if we'd cheer and wave arms about, you know. How much did he pay you? He paid us seven and six, actually. That must have been a fortune to you. Well, then. 90 pence divided by 10 is 9 pence each. Okay. <laughs> oh, that was for all of you, not just not, oh, no, not no, 7 and 6 each. 9 pence each. 9, nine pence each. each. Yeah, right. that's yeah. right, yeah. Did you know any of the stunt riders? This Keddish chap, he also done the act of falling off, off in front of the pub main door. Now, he'd done this three times, and Monty Banks uh, wanted him to do, do it once more, uh, but he refused. He'd had enough, had he? Yes, there were some hot words exchanged, but I can't mention them here now. <laughs> <laughs> and there was also Harold Rowell and the Plant Brothers. What sort of things did Harold do? Harold went down the plank a couple of times, but there was a chap called Scotty Cummins, said he'd have a go. And he did, but he came off from the plank and, and he broke some ribs. So that was his little stint. We were kids and it was great fun. You'll have seen it, it a few up. times since, haven't you? Oh, yes, many times. Yeah. Many times, yeah. Jack Ward, who, as a schoolboy, remembers the fun of being involved in the making of No Limit. The hero of the film was, of course, Formby himself, playing the part of motorcyclist George Shuttleworth. His love interest is Florrie Dibney, played by Florence Desmond. By 1935, Miss Desmond was already well-established as a popular actress, comedian and impersonator with some 20 years' experience of stage and cabaret work behind her and over a dozen films to her credit. And sadly, her memories of working on No Limit were not entirely happy ones, as she once explained to David Collister in this telephone interview. I didn't get on very well with Mr Formby. I know it doesn't show up in the film, but uh, I didn't. He was very inexperienced, as a matter of fact. He'd only done one, oh, sort of cheap little film somewhere, but not even in a proper studio, called Boots. Mm. And it was shown in the north of England and went extremely well. So the distributors thought it would be a good idea to put him in a proper film. They thought it would be a good idea to have George Formby, who had a big following in the north of England, and for me, who had a following in the south, and put us together. It was a good idea, I guess, and the film made a lot of money. And um, it wasn't a true co-starring part, to my way of thinking, equal, equal on both sides. Yes. But it was, it was purely a film for George Formby. He went on to become enormously popular, as, as you know. I mean, did you recognise that sort of star quality in him when you appeared in No Limit? Uh, yes, I knew that he would be a success with an audience, but what was incredible that he made a success in the film because Monty Banks directed it and used to tell him, but everything, when you fade out on a shot, he would just stand quite still. Monty would say, no, George, look, give it a sort of... Do a double take, look and go, ooh, do something. Yeah. As the camera fades up. He had to be guided at every step oh. of the way. So you found him difficult to work with as an actor then? I mean, did you find him difficult as a person off the set? Yes, yes, I did. And was his wife there at the time? Yes, 
She she's always been described by people in show business as a bit of an ogre. She was. You know, she would watch us doing a scene, and uh, uh, out of the corner of my eye, I could see her giving awful looks. You know, say, "Oh God, this thing." Was she jealous she was of you? Jealous of anybody who happened to have an embrace with him. Yeah. Not that that was any joy, but the fact that one did, she couldn't stand it. There, early in the morning, when he was being made up, until he left the studio in the evening. Really? Never left. Can you remember any incidents, uh, pleasant or otherwise, when you were making the film here? Well, I don't want to talk about it. Anymore. No, no, no. What about the finished film? I mean, you must have seen it through. Have you seen it recently at all? They showed it on television a few weeks ago. Yes. What did you think of it? And uh, I thought it was very good. It has been shown here every year, I think, ever since it was released, you know. Yeah, one of the fan letters I got said how they loved this. But this person had a video of the film, yeah. and he wrote me and asked me if I had any stills from the picture, mm. which I haven't got. No. The voice of Florence Desmond, George Formby's co-star in No Limit. The local cinemas lent their support to the film too, as cinema manager Bob Wilkinson explains again to David Collister. Cinemas helped to advertise for people to be extras. They screened the rushes, the raw, unedited footage that was very popular with the locals and, as Bob also explains, made a bit of film history too. I was manager of the Royalty Cinema. That was 1935. And Monty Banks, who was a producer, asked us, all the cinemas in that period of time, to, would we put slides on the screen asking the public to go up to make the extras for the races, yeah. which we did do. There's quite a number of incidences in the film. For instance, the one in the Villa Marina, the shopping arcade, which was took a long time in doing, but it was never shown. They were at that nearly all day long, mm. but it was never shown. And many of the rushes which came from England after they'd filmed over here, we used to show at the royalty during the morning or when they weren't shooting. And it was a time when the cinemas were always packed to suffocation. And when you look back and think of the film like George Formby, which had such local interest, the locals were as happy to go up to the grandstand as were the visitors. Yes. They got a few bob, didn't they, for being extras? I, I can't remember exactly what they did get. But I know I got a, a, a nice gold pencil from Monty Banks for putting the slides on the screen and helping them with their rushes. What sort of fellow was Monty Banks? He was, was he a tough character? Uh, no, I don't think so. He may have been with his artists, but uh, as far as we were concerned, he was uh, quite a nice person. I can't remember exactly the date uh, when it was first shown on the island, but I do know from 1945 onwards, it's been shown twice every year. Where first of all, race week in June, and then in September. And when you come to think of it, that it was shown on every cinema on the island in its time. And there used to be 11 cinemas here on the island. And <coughs> each week it was shown for seven days, twice nightly. So you're talking roughly about a million and a half people have seen this film, 
which is fantastic. Yes. It's more than any other super production that's ever been made. This would be a nice little income for the palace company, as it was, too. It was, and uh, we as cinema managers in those days used to really fight who was going to show No Limit because it was such a winner. People always said, you know, that the, the, the copy of No Limit that we apparently showed seemed to be cut every year and it got shorter and shorter and shorter. Was that true? Well, the, the only way it can, would it get shorter and shorter is that it was in reels. And each time the film was made up, the operators had to snip a piece at the end. So over the, the number of years, and naturally it would appear to get shorter, but it was only small frames that were taken out of the film. And in those days, the first film was an old, what we call a nitrode film, which was flammable which, of course, they do not allow in operating boxes now. Mm. But in those days, uh, the film was entirely different and was one which we used to take great care of. But as time goes on, it certainly makes its mark as far as the film is concerned. How important would you say that film was in the, the whole publicity of the TT races. Do you think it really actually made any difference to publicising the TT? Oh, yes. The, the fans that used to come over for the TT races, if George Formby wasn't on, or they thought it wasn't on, they'd play hell over it. Because it was a must, as far as they were concerned. They would come over to TT races to go and see the races naturally, but also to see George Formby in No Limit. This was it part, was a of, must. The, part of the holiday. They see it year after year. Yeah. Did you always find that it, uh, it brought gales of laughter? Oh, everybody thoroughly enjoyed it. It was always a, a, a pleasure to show it. Even to the latter days, the recent days? Even to then. I mean, to say, we know the techniques of the camera have changed, but it was still great entertainment. What did you make of Formby himself? I mean, they, they say that it was his wife that, that ran his career and uh, made all his decisions for him. Well, I think perhaps that is right, because Beryl was the, uh, definitely the boss. She told him what he had to do. Did you have much to do with him yourself in contact? No, not really. No, very little. When you took over uh, in 1935, can you remember what the prices were in the cinemas? Well, I'm most probably going to shock you here or surprise you. The front stalls used to be sixpence. The rear stalls used to be ninepence. And the rear balcony used to be a shilling and the front one and three. Now, you can't hardly imagine those prices compared with present day prices. The prices always, during the next few years after that, the highest price was two and nine. Yes, they stayed at, at quite a low level for a long time. They stopped for many years at a low level, and the first time we ever had an increase here on this island was when we showed for the first time in the Regal Ten Commandments, hmm. and it was the company, Paramount, took over the hall for that summer, and they wanted to charge, and did charge, five shillings for the front balcony, hmm. and we were amazed that they'd never be able to get it, but they did.
that's the show over for another week. With my thanks to all those who contributed and to our archivist, Tim Price, who finds the stories that he hopes you'll enjoy. Next week, another master storyteller, Ian Qualtro, talks about the characters he remembers from a lifetime spent in the south of the island. But for now, this is Judith saying thank you for your company this evening, whilst I leave the last word to our favourite radio rambler, Howard Hampton. Anyway, till next week, so long, yes, sir.